When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. There are many tales, mostly untrue, about the friendship between the artists Chaim Soutin and Amadeo Modigliani. My favorite involves a boat race. This was in 1917 when you could stand in the streets of Paris and feel the muffled percussion from the guns on the Western Front. German zeppelins were often seen overhead the black market price of a pack of corporals or a couple of kilos of coal was extortionate. A pot of food cost 15 sous. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Steve Stern about his latest novel, The Village Idiot. The story is loosely based on the life of painter Chaim Soutin, who was born in the region of Minsk, which was then part of an area where Jews were allowed to live, but is now considered to be part of Belarus. Portrayed in the novel as oafish and unmannered, Soutine created a way of painting with thick layers and was known for his still lives filled with dead animals. Steve Stern has created a brilliant, gorgeously written novel based on Soutine's life, filled with imagined conversations, but still ending in Soutine's death due to a perforated ulcer. Hi, Steve. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Galit. It's uh, lovely to be here. Was there a particular painting or something that Chaim Soutin did that inspired this novel? Well, I first saw his paintings in, at the Barnes Foundation in Philadelphia uh, years ago, and uh, I was stunned, riveted. Uh, it was mostly landscapes that I remember seeing and uh, a, a couple of portraits. Uh, I'd never seen anything like it. Uh, it just you know, the, the still lifes of animals, dead animals, it looked like the, their souls were being released, you know, in the process of his painting. Uh, but 
that was it. Uh, I don't think he entered my mind again until I, I read a book uh, called Shocking Paris by uh, a writer named Meisner. And uh, it was about the school of Paris, which was uh, uh, a circle of mostly Jewish painters uh, from Eastern Europe who were working in Paris in the 20s and 30s, the teens, 20s and 30s. And uh, a lot of the book uh, had to do with, with Chaim Soutine, who was uh, essentially self-taught, came from an impoverished backwater shtetl uh, in what was then Lithuania, uh, arrived in Paris, uh, unshorn, unwashed, filthy, uh, my kind of guy. <laughs> I, I became fascinated with this, this sort of uncivilized bumpkin who was also possessed with a kind of genius that uh, drove him drove him ha- like hag-ridden throughout his life. Uh, it often made a mess of his life, but uh, the paintings were savage uh, and brilliant. So I was, you know, I, 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 also I should say that there was very little known about his life. He, he wrote nothing uh Memories of Soutine mostly turn up in in biographies of other painting other painters like Modigliani uh, or Pascal, and I, I I wanted to kind of fill in the, the the connective tissue between the few events of his life that uh, had actually been documented, and uh, you know because there was so little known, it it gave me a lot of latitude for invention. Uh, which was fun. Mm-hmm. The first line of your book is, quote, there are many tales, mostly untrue, about the friendship between the artists Chaim Soutin and Amadeo Modigliani. My favorite involves a boat race. Two questions. Let's discuss the boat race. And secondly, why do you occasionally choose to write in the first person? I... I started the book in the first person, uh, and that voice uh, interrupts the narrative from time to time. And it was it was just a way of kind of reminding the reader that I'm telling a tale, uh, and that the the facts of the narrative uh, need not be taken entirely seriously. Uh, a little like. Moby Dick, where, you know, it begins with Ishmael as a narrator and he quickly fades into the woodwork. Uh, but what was the second question? The, uh, the boat race. Oh, the boat race. Let's discuss. Well, that, that's... Uh, that's that's entirely my invention. <laughs> uh, you know, it might have happened. Uh, I think it should have happened. Uh, it, it's certainly the kind of thing that that Modigliani, who was you know a great prankster and uh, always looking for a way to kind of enliven uh, the life of you know the, the artist community, uh, and you know, and I thought, well, it's it's during the First World War. Uh, uh, everybody's living on slender means. Uh, it's a it's a perilous time. 
Um, and uh, so it, it, it needed a diversion. And, uh, you know, what, what better diversion for the artist than to create these uh, sort of makeshift uh boats uh to race in the same uh of course most of them are so cobbled together that they sink almost instantly and and i guess i had uh, a kind of a vision of modigliani in his bathtub uh uh being tugged by uh well he would have wanted swans but all he could find were East and uh, you know, and then I thought, well, Soutin, who was his friend uh, and admirer, uh, and Modigliani was a kind of mentor to Soutin. He was ten years older, uh, and Soutin had had a, a, a sort of adoration of Modigliani that was unlike his feeling, I think for anyone else on earth in his life. He adored him and, uh, and would go along with these, uh, uh, this sort of ridiculous, uh, episodes that, that Modigliani was always concocting, uh, brothels, duels, uh, you know, drinking binges. Uh, so why not put him in a diving suit and have him pulling the bathtub from, uh, the, the floor of the Seine, uh, which would ensure Modigliani's victory in, in the bow race. Um, so that's all. <laughs> and well, it was not quite all, um, because I also thought that if you put Chaim in this diving suit, then you have a kind of a, a, a vehicle uh, for a character in a sort of womb-like state. And, and in that state, uh, as in the state of uh, infants in the Jewish legend of the angel of forgetfulness, uh, the, the infant in the womb knows everything, uh, past, present, future, uh, and all of Torah. Uh, and once they're born, uh, the angel gives them a, a sort of fillip under the nose, uh, which erases everything that they have known before. So I thought, well, here's a vehicle for Chaim to be able to kind of challenge the whole of his life, you know, its entirety, past, present, future. Uh, and I wanted to kind of juggle the chronology of, of his story in a way that would give the reader hopefully an impression that everything is happening in his life simultaneously. Ah, I think you succeeded with that. You portray Chaim as a disgusting, disgusting in his personal hygiene. As I said, my with kind of guy. <laughs> with horrible manners. How much of that did you invent? No, that unfortunately was the case. Uh, he, he really was pretty uncouth. Uh, he was hydrophobic. Uh, he distrusted plumbing. He was frightened of it, in fact. Uh, and, you know, he, he was he was 10th of 11 children in a family that really had absolutely nothing. His father was a patch tailor, which means he wasn't even a, a, a tailor. He, he sewed torn garments for a living. Uh, Achaim was often hungry. 
and he was he was abused and, and, and often treated almost like an animal by the family. And it had an awful lot to do with the fact that he was drawing pictures uh, from a very early age. And as you know, this is a violation of the second commandment. You know, you're, you're making images. And uh, that, in a way, is an imitation of God. And uh, therefore, uh, it's a transgression and a sin. And uh, every time he was caught drawing a picture he was beaten mercilessly by his father his brothers pitched in he would be tossed into uh you know the the cellar or locked in a chicken coop uh and he finally when he was able to leave this this little shtetl that he grew up in and had been a kind of nightmare uh childhood for him it was because he had done the unforgivable which was to uh draw a portrait of the local rabbi uh the rabbi's son happened to be a butcher burly character who when he discovered the portrait beat Heim almost to death uh he you know bones were broken uh you know skull was fractured uh and his mother went to the the rabbi and asked for compensation uh, for his son her son's injuries and frankly the the town was so glad to see the back of him that they donated enough money for him to to leave uh, which is when he went to Minsk uh, enrolled in an art academy there and uh, finally left for Paris. Um, and obviously that was not religion that was all superstition so just to keep that in mind but what a fascinating story yeah and and, Um, and it explains a lot of what you know this is a guy with a lot of trauma to overcome which in fact i think he never really did and uh yeah and you write that you know a, a primitive in his way right you write that more painting is being done at this time in France by immigrants from the Eastern European ghettos than the Jews have produced in all the centuries that have gone before. Why are so many of the artists in this circle Jewish? Well, it wasn't that so many of them were Jewish as that so many of the Jews who were painting came to Paris. Uh, and it was, I mean, it was, it was, you know, an unprecedented phenomenon. There had been virtually no Jewish art until, you know, end of the 19th, early 20th century. Uh, and, and it really was because of that, that kind of adherence to the commandments, strict fundamental adherence. Uh, and there was a movement in Eastern Europe at the time called a Haskalah, which was uh, a kind of... Uh, westernization, introducing uh, the children of the shtetl to the secular world. Uh, and, you know, so a lot of artists, young Jewish artists like Chagall, for instance, who grew up in Vitebsk, which was, which was a real town, uh, were allowed to actually uh, 
go to art schools or to learn, you know, the rudiments of painting as as children. Not so with with Soutine. Uh, I think that his obsession with art was entirely sui generis uh, and in a way inexplicable. Uh, but Paris was ground zero of the cultural universe at that time. And so if you wanted to be an artist, uh, you came from all over Europe uh, and not just Europe. I mean, there were Australians, there were Argentinians, there were Japanese, you know. Uh, and it was this incredible, you know, stewpot of artistic creation and everyone uh you know partaking of the energies of everyone else and uh just an incredible kind of dynamism in in paris at that time lots of experimentation going on um you one hint you give about Chaim soutine's painting is that he always has to have his subject in front of him was that well known it well, it certainly was in the case of Soutine. Uh, it you know it wasn't the case for probably most painters, uh, and I, I think it was a it was a particular peculiar characteristic of of Soutine that he had this kind of intimate, almost you know vampire like relation to his subjects. Uh, you know, if he painted a dead animal, uh, there there was almost a, an identification with you know the, the carcass. Uh, if he painted a portrait, it wasn't so much uh, uh, an accurate rendition of of a face as a, you know Heim's own sort of mythologization of that face. If he painted a landscape, it was. Um, it was almost as if the landscape were painted in, you know, in in the course of of, of a hurricane, uh, this turbulent, stormy, maelstrom-like landscapes uh, that were really a reflection of the, I think, the inner turmoil of, of the painter himself. Uh, so it was always, you know a kind of urgent need for him to see his subject. Um, and not the case with so many painters who could do a sketch, go back to the studio and then do the rendering there. Can you say something about the cafe where the proprietor allows artists to linger and sometimes lets them pay their bills yeah. with paintings? Well, Soutine and Modiani's favorite cafe was a rotonde, uh, but that that was pretty much the case with all the cafes in Montparnasse at the time, the Dome, uh, Closerie de Lila, the Jockey Club. Uh, artists were... Uh, you know, they they were the the embodiment of the bohemian life, and that was a you know exuded a sort of freedom, uh, you know, of of uh, not just movement, sexual freedom, you know, uh, that that drew uh, 
the tourists, uh, the you know the gentry uh, to these cafes. So you know artists could go and for the price of a you know a cafe au lait uh, or a brandy, you sit there all day. And uh, most of them lived in such uh, you know desolate places that, uh, you know, when they finished their work for the day, uh, the, the cafes had braziers for heat. Uh, and then again, you know, there was that community that was, uh, was so essential to them. I, I think they all drew upon each other's energies and, and partook of each other's creativity. And so the air was electric in, in that part of Paris, Montparnasse, uh, where you know almost all of the artists had uh, had chosen to live, uh, you know the art the, the artistic world of, of Paris kind of began in, in Montmartre, uh, where Picasso, and Braque were working earlier. Uh, uh, it became sort of overrun with tourists and. The, the the whole scene moved to to Montparnasse, and the great thing is, is almost all of those cafes are still there. Uh, the, uh, the La Rouche, which was this amazing, uh, La Rouche means the beehive, which was this amazing sort of a, a philanstery that was uh, constructed from the the buildings that were built during the exhibition for the you know where the Eiffel Tower was was constructed. Uh, uh, a, a sculptor named Boucher dismantled one of the buildings and built this extraordinary octagonal tower. Uh, for artists to live in cheaply. Uh, and at the time that Soudin was living there, uh, Mordigliani was there, uh, Asif Zadkin, Apollinaire, the poet, lived there, Chagall lived there, uh, Fernand Leger, uh, the, the Delanais, Brancusi, on and on and on. So, you know, you, you can imagine what a, a, an incredible hive of creativity the place was. Uh, Let's discuss uh, for a bit Dr. Barnes and how he affected Chaim. Well, he put Chaim on the map. Uh, you know, Chaim was really the prototype of the starving artist, literally starving. Uh, you know, he he would go to the Gare uh, Montparnasse or uh to uh, you know, the markets, haul vegetables, uh, carry food cases, um, you know, for a few francs and uh, use the francs to buy food, often food that was the subject of his paintings. He would paint with his mouth watering and then devour, you know, the couple of herrings or the tomatoes that, that, that he had purchased with the little money that he had. Uh, and this was, this was the, the case when, uh, when Barnes, uh, who was a great collector of modern art came to Paris. And this was, he, he, he'd been sending his, uh, sort of ambassador, William Glockens, who was a painter of the, uh, the Ashcan school in New York, uh, to buy paintings for him. And then finally decided he wanted to go himself. Uh, Chaim, 
had uh, an agent, Zborowski, uh, this Polish uh, art dealer, very dreamy uh, poet, uh, terrible dealer, but a, a lovely man who had been Modigliani's uh, uh, dealer. He loved Modigliani. Modigliani said, well, you know, Here's Chaim Soutine, who is a genius. Uh, Zborowski took him on as a favor to uh, Soutine. Um, so Barnes was in a, a gallery. Uh, he he would he, he he would have seen Soutine's painting probably high up on a wall where you know it was practically unnoticed because there were no buyers. And he said, "Hey, that one's a peach." And uh, Guillaume, Paul Guillaume, the, the, the uh, gallery owner, said, no, no, it's not a peach, it's a, it's a soutine. And uh, Barnes said, I want to see more. And uh, Guillaume took him to Zborowski. Borowski had uh, close to 50 paintings of soutine. Barnes said, I want them all. And uh, this, he, the, the money that he paid soutine lifted him from poverty it made him the envy of his peers uh and really was a kind of a cinderella story because soutine didn't need he he was not uh in need of money for the rest of his life uh there were patrons uh madame castang who was a famous uh sort of interior decorator uh became known for the you know the castang uh style uh and still you know you can go to her chateau today and it's it's it was very famous she and her husband were uh extremely rich and they they made soutine their you know the, the they endowed him essentially for most of the rest of his life uh Oh, that, that, they were wonderful, rich characters. I was just mesmerized by the whole story. I, I've already told you this, but I wanted every, I wanted everyone to know. Um, so, Steve, what are you working on next? Oh, I, I will tell you, but uh, when I tell friends about this project, they tend to look at their watches, you know, but... Uh, Gershom Sholem, who was the great scholar of Jewish mysticism, uh, the 20th century scholar, and essentially lifted the entire field of Jewish mysticism out of uh, obscurity. Uh, It had been for most of the last several hundred years, almost forgotten and for reasons that I could go into, but I won't be, to keep it short. But anyway, after the war, uh, Second World War, um, as you know, millions of Jewish artifacts, paintings, and books had been confiscated by the Nazis. Much of it destroyed, much of it survived, and had been cashed away in the uh, castles and uh, the, the cellars of warehouses. And uh, uh, Gershom Sholem, much out of character and out of his comfort zone, had been sent to Europe to try to recover uh, a lot of these lost books. Uh, and uh, his 
his travels took him all around Europe, uh, confrontations with all kinds of uh, people, many of whom were ex-Nazis, uh, you know, Soviet Russians, uh, trying to hang on uh, to what they thought might be of value. And uh, it, was, it was an experience that, that really broke uh, Gershom Sholem, and uh, it, it, uh, it, it took him years to recover from this. But the, the book is basically about his travels, uh, and I, I'm not going to say any more about it because you're probably... Okay. <laughs> yes, I'm familiar <laughs> with the story, but the question is, is it going to be a fictionalized telling well, of the story? Well, a lot of it, is, is, it will be based on fact, but there's a... There's another narrative that is a kind of a uh, an anti-Sholem narrative. In, in the, Don't tell me now. Uh, I'm going to have to the read stories the stories are torn. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'll look forward to it. It really is right up my alley. Thank you so much, Steve. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Oh, it's a pleasure talking to you. And um, I I hope we can cross paths in, uh, in a gallery in Chicago sometime soon. And again, thank you for joining me. This is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking to Steve Stern, author of The Village Idiot, a fictionalized telling of the life of artist Chaim Soutine. Hope you all have a wonderful book to read today and every day. Happy reading. Happy reading.